welcome. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I'm a native of Newark, New Jersey, and each week I'll be interviewing artists, historians, authors, and other cultural thought leaders to discuss the cultural impact and influence that Newark has had and continues to have on their lives and work. Navindran Hodges is the gallery director for Bill Hodges Gallery, located in the Chelsea Arts District in Manhattan. The gallery was established in 1979 by his father, Bill Hodges. The gallery's collection ranges from 19th century Black artist Henry Asawa Tanner to Harlem Renaissance legends James Vanderzee to modernist abstraction icons Norman Lewis, Jacob Lawrence, and Ramir Bearden. Contemporary artists include Willie Cole, Carrie Mae Weems, and Kahindi Wiley. The gallery's practice is broad, and there are many Latin American, Asian, and European artists within the roster as well. Devendran attended the Sotheby's Institute of Art, where he received a master's degree in art business, and the University of Iowa, where he received a bachelor's degree in biology. Welcome, Navindran Hodges. Hi, thank you for having me. Great, great to have you here. And um, I've, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've known you for more than a couple of years. I think the first time we met was uh, at your gallery, you and your dad's gallery on 57th Street. Right. And we haven't been in 57th Street. I think we closed that space. Ooh, has it been? Has it been almost nine years now? <laughs> I think we closed that space in 2012. Okay, great. So again, you were, you were younger and I was younger. <laughs> you're, you're, you're much younger than I am, but uh, that's okay. I'm not going to hold that against me or you. Uh, I mean, hopefully I can accomplish a, a few more things and in the next few years to catch up with what you've done. So absolutely. And I'm sure you will. So Navindran, um, I want to get right down to business. Um, what is your family's connection to Newark? Well, my family's connection to Newark is my father is from Newark. Okay. Um, he was born in Newark. He was raised in Newark. He went to Rutgers. So, um, however, he left at around 26, moved to New York. And since then, we haven't, I haven't spent much time in Newark. I, I would periodically visit family, mostly visit my grandmother when she was still living. Um, but she passed a few years ago. Um, and a lot of the times when we went back to Newark, it was off for a funeral, which is unfortunate okay. um, because that's you know a family event that would occur. Right. Um, the I guess the other reason I went to Newark was like 2000, maybe 14, 15. I went to see the sakura trees at uh, <laughs> Branchbrook Park. Yes, which was beautiful. Yeah, that's that's my old neighborhood. Like um, that was North North. Uh, I think did your dad go to West West um, West Side High School? Do you do you know? Did he ever share that with you? That sounds familiar, but I don't remember which high school he went to. Um, but I don't know why it would sound familiar otherwise. I guess right, right. I think I think he shared that with me. I I would I would run into your dad at um, different art fairs, and uh, it was always you know it was always great to see him. And we never really sort of caught up about Newark, but I, I knew we were both from Newark. And uh, so um, you're my first guest who's the second generation of someone <laughs> who was born and raised in Newark. And so, you know, the, the, the podcast, um, 
you know, Newark can be sort of a launching pad. Newark can be a place that um, sort of weaves in and out or doesn't necessarily have to. Um, but again, I, I knew your father um, I was from Newark. Uh, again, what I really have always admired about him is his sense of um, just being in a place where very few people um, have been able to position themselves, no matter what color, no matter what their economic status. Uh, art has been a very, or continues not so much to be a very exclusive, uh, exclusive industry, as you as you well know. Absolutely. So, so the fact that your dad sort of uh, put a stake in the ground in such a significant way and continues in the second generation with you uh, to um, to sort of lead this conversation in uh, where art is going, where art has been, um, the the extraordinary conversation of art and uh, how it really sort of is a or always has been a response to the times that we live in. So um, I know that your dad founded um, Bill Hodges Gallery in 1993, which is about right. 20 years ago. And I do know that you've been there for almost half of that time, maybe 15 years. Is that correct? Something like that, because I started working with him. I guess that's the complicated part of both those statements. One, uh, we opened the first gallery on 57th Street in 1993. However, my father established a, the company of, I believe it was at the time, uh, AFTU, which is Art for the Uncontrolled. Um, back in 78. Oh. Um, and that's when he was still, he was starting to collect art. Um, and in reality, that's, I guess, when he started to sell art, um, which was the, the part of establishing it as a business. Um, because as he found works that he liked, he later learned that there were other works that he liked and he would have to sell his previous works to acquire the new works. Um, so it just seemed like the business grew in that direction. Um, and then by 1993, he opened the gallery because he was he hadn't built up enough for collection and he felt confident that um, the works that he had were works that needed to be shown, especially on 57th Street. Um, and given what the art world was looking for, where people went to to look for art of a certain caliber, if you would, um, 57th Street was the best place for him to open that gallery. Um, and when he opened it, it was a small space. It was a very small space, um, which is interesting because I look at our gallery now and our current gallery is, I think, about 5,000 square feet. Um, I don't know if the first gallery was 1,000 square feet. Um, he had some wall space. He sectioned off an area in the corner as his office where he would be able to meet with clients, so on and so forth. But it was, it was very much a, a business space um, with a gallery to show work that he felt was very important to be shown. Um, I think we, he had that space the way it was until about 2002, so about 10 years, at which point the gallery that was next to us moved out. Um, and he took over that space, expanded the gallery, and we, at that point, had a fairly decent-sized gallery. Um, 
which was great because we had an office on one side and we had space for an entire uh, for proper exhibitions on the other. And we we did that. We we had I thought wonderful exhibitions by of work um, by artists who were very significant um, to the current narrative. Then I think we closed that space in two thousand. 12. So about 10 years after the larger space, we closed the space in 2012. Um, and, so we, and we moved to a space in Brooklyn. When we made that move to the space in Brooklyn, we our lease was over on 57th Street. Um, but leading up to the closing of that space, so much of what we were doing was digital. Um, whether it was use of social media, but more importantly, just sending emails to people. Um, and uh, we I, were regularly sending out what I guess e-blasts, announcements, um, advertising works that we had available. And it was proving to be very effective. So that combined with the fact that we were very inundated with managing that space and needed the time to actually properly document what we had led us to our space in Brooklyn, which did not have an exhibition space. It was mostly storage office space. Allowed us to continue sending out our emails, communicating, selling work, acquiring new work, but also documenting what we had because they were works that we didn't have photographs of the signature and things like that. So um, taking the time to properly take photographs of all the works and also set up a new database where information can be entered and we could easily access it was very important for our time that we spent in Brooklyn. Um, and we were there until, well, I guess we had that space up until last year. However, we opened our second gallery space or new gallery space um, at 529 West 57th Street, um, at 529 West 20th Street on the second floor. But we kept the space in Brooklyn, mostly for storage. And we used the space uh, in Chelsea on 20th Street as our gallery space. And it was, again, it was a great time. Um, we received an offer for um, a, a space that was moving, uh, sorry, a gallery that was moving out. Uh, they wanted to sublet the space. Sounded great. And we took the space. And we used that space for two years, so the two year lease. And again, a lot of our sales were sending out emails, communicating that, but we still had a nice space that we were able to exhibit what we had. And a lot of people were happy about it. Um, I thought we put up good exhibitions and um, we were able to advertise what we had in a great manner. And it was right by the High Line. It was Chelsea. It was where a lot of places from 57th Street had moved. So we essentially moved with the movement. Um, I think a number of galleries were already starting to move further downtown, but we did not make that move. Um, just like when we were on 57th Street, a number of galleries were starting to make the move to Chelsea, and we did not do that until a few years later, um, when it was a bit more established in both scenarios. Then we only had a two-year lease at that space. Um, so in September of 2016, we closed that space. We still had the space in Brooklyn, moved everything back into Brooklyn. Um, and again, we had acquired a number of things. We had not completed our proper documentation of the things that my father's acquired over the many years that he's been collecting art. And so we went back to proper uh, documentation of everything, building our database, making sure we're ready, um, and also 
that we were still sending out emails, which was interesting because in 2019, we started looking at moving into a new space. Again, we started looking at, we were looking at 529 West 20th Street. And we, it took us a while to find a space that worked for us, uh, community back and forth with the landlord, so on and so forth. So we actually signed the lease for our current space, which is on the 10th floor, last year in February, which was an interesting time because we closed for the pandemic in March. Right, right. Um, and I think we opened our first exhibit, which was Bearden and Company, which is named after uh, the first exhibit my father had at his space on 57th Street. Um, I think we opened that exhibit on the 27th of February, if I remember correctly. Um, and then I think around March 14th, closed for the pandemic, which was very, I guess, very lucky that we had so much state time spent in Brooklyn that allowed us to get used to what to do when we don't have that direct uh, communicate or direct interaction with our clients or potential clients where I went back to and sent out a lot of emails. I would, I've still been regularly hanging up exhibitions. We take photographs, we try to make, we upgraded our website, things like that. Um, spent more time on social media. Um, but that's, that's what a lot of the last year has been at least, I guess. Wow. Um, well, that's, that's where Newark led us. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, you know, I, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about this AFTU, which I find very interesting. Um, but uh, so we'll get back to that in a minute. But tell me, how did you decide or when did you decide to pursue a career in art? I mean, people would say, oh, well, it was obvious. His father started a, an art business, had a gallery. Of course, he would go into this business. That, <laughs> that is not necessarily uh so and so did it happen that way for you or did you have another career um trajectory that that wasn't in art uh that is so so that is not the case at all um i had a very different career trajectory i my undergraduate degree is in biology and japanese um i was on track to become a doctor and I did not make it to medical school because before I left my, I guess I, I did not, uh, even in my undergraduate degree, there's a lot of time that's put into on that pre-med track, making sure you are ready to become a doctor um, or enter med school in the first place. And I would shadow doctors and I'd have conversations with them about what it really takes and what I would have to do to do that. Um, the, I, I enjoyed the coursework. I'm a, I'm definitely a math science mentality kind of person. Um, but the problem was I'm terrible with blood. I hate needles. I hate, I, there's, there's so many things involved in the portion of becoming a doctor that, uh, would make that difficult for me. And part of my, I guess, uh, way of dealing with that, at least that's what I thought I, my plan was before I had spent a number of years uh, pursuing that track was to disconnect myself from that process where if I have, I'm going to regularly have to give people needles, I'm going to regularly have to interact with blood by disconnecting myself from that process, I could deal with it. 
that was my plan because I like I like the science, I like the math, and I I was I was not bad at it. Um, I had a conversation with a doctor that that pushed me over the edge. I guess changed the trajectory of my life, um, which was if I am going to become a good doctor, I cannot disconnect myself from the pain, the the needles, all that studying, all of the things that I would be doing to my to my patients, I cannot disconnect myself from that because I would not become, I would not be a good doctor. I will lack the empathy to, pro- to properly help them. Um, and it was at that point that I realized it was not the best path, much to the chagrin of my father. Uh, <laughs> but because uh, he, he very much wanted me to become a doctor. Um, but so I, I come out of school. Japanese and biology. No, I could go into research. Um, I could further become fluent in Japanese and do something with that. Um, but even before I left school, for I guess most of my life, my, I mean, my father's had the gallery since '93, and I, what, in '93, I was about 13 years old. Um, so I. I had spent a lot of time at the gallery. I've, I've spent a lot of time in my life around art. Even as a kid, my father would go to the auction houses, Sotheby's, Christie's, um, uh, Phillips. I remember Phillips moving around as many times as they did. And even as a child, I'd sit on the floor and wait for him to bid on works. Um, because as easy it is, as it is to bid on, on works now, whether you leave your absentee bids or you go online and bid on things online, which everybody's had to do in the last year. Um, a lot of things were in person back then, and I was along for the ride. Um, and even during college, high school, if I had a break, I worked at the gallery. So coming out of college, it it, w- it made sense as something to do, because I, I could not do nothing. That would make no sense. Um, so I did that. Um, but going into working with my father, it's work learning to work for for my father was special in the sense that it's a small business and regardless of how much i enjoyed the work how regardless of how much i enjoyed the art learning how to run a business was the majority of the i guess the formative years of my time spent i went into this not knowing how to use Photoshop, InDesign. I guess we used Quark Express back then. Um, I had some understanding, of course, of Word because I went to school and how to use Excel because I was a biology major. I used it for all my lab reports and things like that. Um, but there were a lot of programs I didn't understand. I, I had to learn how to do taxes. I had to learn how to um, keep track of things uh, in terms of that uh, various inventory uh, Things that again had to be built upon later when we when we moved to the Brooklyn space. Um, hadn't built a crate before. Had to build crates for works of art. Um, but there there were so many skills on the business side of it before I even got to the fact that I did not know much about the history of art um, that I spent so much time working on. In reality, that's since we've had the new gallery, that's what I've been trying to concentrate on, building up my art history knowledge, which is 
a basic level of what we've carried, um, but but not as in depth as as what it really needs to be. So that's my my current scenario. Um, yeah. So got out of college, twenty, started working with my father, and I've I've worked with him for the most part for the for the most of that time. Um, and this is because I finished college at twenty, so I this was. A uh, 2005, or sorry, right, 2005. Um, so I've been working with him to some capacity since 2005, 2006. Um, then after a few years, my father realized that I should get a higher degree and uh, said that he didn't, he wanted me to get a higher degree if I was going to continue working there, one, and two, um, he would pay for it. So I did that. Um, I went to the Sotheby's Institute of Art and got my degree in art business, which was a very interesting experience in the sense that I went to school with a lot of people who weren't those biology majors. They weren't teach, yes. uh, studying things like that. They were, they were art history majors because that made sense. You go get your art history major or you, do, you get your uh, studio art major and you want to pursue business, so you study the art business. Um, so I spent a lot of time learning uh, art history as best I can in that sense. But there were also classes on how auction house work, how, how auction houses work. Um, and what is the purpose of a gallery and how to hang an exhibition, which were all things that I, I already knew that, which was nice. Um, in fact, when I, at the end of that, the, it's, it was three semesters, but in the third semester, you had to write a thesis, which again, Coming from biology and Japanese, I did not write a lot of long papers. Um, and so there I was having to write this 50 to 75 page paper. Um, and the, I, I feel like I handled it in the most mathematical way I could, um, which was I looked at six different artists and I tracked their prices at auction over the course of, I think, about 15 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, okay. and, I, yeah, and I broke it down as much as I could because I knew I needed to get to the, the amount of pages that I needed to get to. Um, and it was about African-American art in the auction market. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed it because of it, because it was, it was a numbers analysis of a scenario. And it was very much a, a me kind of way to look at it. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Well, but, the immersion that you've had naturally by being at your father's side, as you said, as a kid being at mm -hmm. auctions and being in the thick of it um, was obviously very, um, you know, very important in your, in your uh, growing up and, and understanding the business. Um, so I, I want to get back to the AFTU for a minute because it seems like your dad made a sort of a pivot or change from, the way the gallery or the art business started to where it eventually, what it eventually became. Can you, can you share a little bit about AFTU well, and again, what is the, an acronym for? If I remember correctly, it's art for the uncontrolled. Okay. Um, and in reality, it's not, it's, it's the same. Mm -hmm. uh, my father has always been a lover of art. Um, and he has looked to acquire the works that he, that he loves. And like I said, even at the beginning of it, it was a matter of selling what he had 
to acquire work that he wanted. Mm-hmm. And over time, it just builds from there. So in reality, even when he was looking at smaller prints that he acquired um, in the 70s and the 80s to acquire a, an original work, whether it be a canvas or a work on paper, um, that is the same concept as him looking at the works that he's had for 15, 20 years now um, and being willing to sell them so that he can acquire works that, let's say, he sees or somebody offers him or comes in or we see an auction or something along those lines. Um, so the concept really has not changed much. Um, but the, I guess the size of it has changed a little bit. <laughs> right, right. And it, and it sounds very much like a 70s type of sort of um, looking at art at a very sort of different way of um, the, the way that traditionally art might have uh, been perceived. And so possibly your dad was looking at a way to sort of stand out from the traditional galleries. Um, and, uh, so, so, you know, I find that interesting. I, you know, thank you for sharing that. We're in 2021. Your dad started this gallery in 1993. Um, you you shared with us these um, what how the pandemic had sort of given you the time and the opportunity to you know continue um, uh, with the um, you know with with your um, the process of recording the work that you had um, uh, acquired and getting the provenance straightened out and signatures, et cetera. And so, uh, so it was a, a, a great time, obviously, to, um, to, to prepare and to um, do all of that work that people typically do while they're running the business, while, while clients are coming in, while there are exhibitions that you're mounting, et cetera. So, so thank you for that. What, what I am interested in is you know, the other huge tumultuous event that, uh, that happened um, last year and, was, and it's still in the, in the crux of, um, of evolving is the Black Lives Matter um, movement. And I wanted to know um, how that has impacted your gallery in the sense that has the movement um, changed the way you're Thinking about curating, um, can, can you can you share some of your thoughts with me about again this very um, you know important and um, life changing you know very very few of us I mean I grew up in the like your dad in the sixties and seventies where there was a lot of tumult and you know with civil rights and huge huge advances for not only people of color but for women and, and people uh, with different, you know, gender orientations. Um, how has the Black Lives Matter impacted your idea of how the gallery may be moving forward? Um, well, the thing about that is the disconnect between the message and what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, even before uh, 
I guess people had a bit more time because of the pandemic um, to really try to hold more people accountable for the things that were happening. There was talk of a movement towards collecting more art by African-Americans. Um, I've seen a lot of contemporary artists move up drastically fast. And I've also seen a large amount of um, African artists show up in the market. But I guess over the course of the last year, gallery or museums are starting to put forward that they're looking to deaccession works that they have to try to, I guess, right a wrong that they, they feel has occurred. Um, but reviewing the numbers of what galleries, or sorry, not galleries, um, museums have been adding to their collections by, uh, by Black and, and female artists and artists of really any not white male persuasion, um, the numbers don't seem to be very drastic. And they don't seem to be anywhere near as drastic as what they are putting forward. Their messages, whether it be on their home page or what e emails they send out, or I guess whatever black box they put on their Instagram account. Um, maybe it's overly cynical, but I think it, it it's still going to take a while. And in terms of our perspective on it or our, our methods, we have been trying to keep track of what, what museums are doing versus what they are saying. Um, and reach out to more museums, not necessarily to give them a hard time, but to say to to present them with options, because it's it's also perfectly possible that they're not finding the works that fit their collection, um, which might again be related to what their collection is currently built upon. But to present them with options to help them move in a direction that I think everybody thinks would make the art world a better place. Sure. I mean, you you obviously in, you know, concentrating and being of the uh, showing work of the African diaspora, you, you've been ahead of the, the, the curve for the last 30 years. <laughs> well, my father's been. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but you've been there for almost 15 years. So you're part sure. of, the, you're part of that, um, that, that movement. Uh, but what I, what I, you know, I'm trying to get to is more of have, you know, is the, are the titles, are the themes uh, the same as they were maybe five years ago? Or are this, this idea that, uh, yes, this, this movement is important and it is an opportunity for collectors, institutions to pay attention. Have you, have you uh, tried or is it important for you to change the way you communicate what you're, what you're doing and how you're doing it? Um, well, yes. Um, and that, that is directly related to the way we reach out to museums. And I do think that between have one, having the larger gallery space and what's been happening with the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement, it, we've been definitely pushing more towards museums because it, having work in museums puts it on a gives it a platform that 
allows more people to see it and more people to see it and feel that this is what art is supposed to be. And so it's very important for the works that, um, that have been ignored for so long to gain that place. Mm-hmm. Um, but something I do discuss with my father is the difference between a lot of newer contemporary artists showing up, getting snatched up by a, uh, one of the, one of the galleries that, that will snatch up an artist uh, who is black just because they know that that is the cool thing to do, I guess. Um, the difference between the rate at which their prices are increasing and the rate at which museums want to acquire them versus the people or the artists who, who a lot of them might not be living um, anymore, who, who really laid the groundwork for a lot of the artists today. Um, like, I guess most museums have a, a Romare Bearded now. Um, but if you look at even auction records of like a Bearden, a Jacob Lawrence, who set a record not that long ago, um, Norman Lewis, who set a record, I think, two years ago with his work, I think sold for about 2.7 million. Um, it's still not, uh, for example, a Carrie James Marshall, which I don't, I guess I don't remember what his name is right now, Diddy of some kind. Um, <laughs> the, uh, his, his acquisition of that for, I think, about 21 million. Um, it's, it's an interesting world to try to navigate and, and decide at what point do the people who built the groundwork for this get their recognition. And I think that that's what we're trying to figure out and try to push towards museums. Great. Yeah. The, the artist that your, your dad started the, the gallery with, um, I guess at the, um, 57th Street location, uh, I think was the Norman Lewis exhibition. And, um, and or I know Bearden was going to be the um, sort of the focus, but I, I also have found, that, found out that Norman Lewis was another, uh, possibly uh, was exhibited before this Ramir Bearden show. And so you have two significant um, artists um, of you know incredible stature and importance that um, your dad um, sort of introduced uh, to the art world in in a, in a white box kind of setting, you know, on 57th Street, not too far from the Museum of Modern Art. Right. Um, and there are so many of those artists that you continue to exhibit. Ed Clark, um, uh, uh, another um, Norker, uh, Willie Cole. I see that Willie Cole is has one of his scorch pieces in an exhibition that you have currently. Um, as as the next generation or the the next generation of the Hodges, what kind of impact do you would do you see yourself um, in, importing on the on the practice on on the gallery? Is that's very similar to where and how your dad um, introduced these two, you know, American icons. Is that, is that as important to you or is it just, as you said, the business of art and getting this work to the institutions that in the past had not either had access or didn't believe that they should have been, you know, acquiring them? Well, I think those things 
go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think getting the work to the institutions that um, will allow a large number of people to view them is the important part of getting specific artists into the narrative of what is our history. Um, I think that what my father did with Norman Lewis, because he was working with the estate at the time, um, and I, and as I said, the exhibition was called Bearden Company. So it was Norman Lewis along with Bearden. I guess I not, I don't, rem- I'm not sure of which works were included in his first exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the idea was it was Bearden and people he knew. Um, and Bearden was close with, with Norman Lewis and they, I think they were, like they started spiral. I'm trying to remember what yes, year yeah. they started the spiral. Um, but then they, when they, when they worked together, um, they had, I guess, different paths in terms of their work. Um, and Bearden ended up becoming a bit more well known at the time than Norman Lewis. And I like Bearden's work, but I'm a huge fan of Norman Lewis's work. And and I don't know if that's just because I grew up with it around (laughs) me for so long. Um, But I feel like Norman Lewis is highly under, I don't know, undervalued. And I mean that more than a a sense of price um, or what he sells for at auction. Um, And to have works in museums translates into how people value the work. And again, more than just price or what, what price you put on the work. And as these contemporary artists are showing up in museums, I do still believe that pushing the, the Norman Lewis's, the Romeo Bearden's, the Jacob Lawrence's um, into museum collections or even the people before that, because from the, if you look at the early 1900s, late 1800s, there's Tanner, um, which shows up fairly frequently. Um, but uh, William Edward Scott, who is actually taught by Tanner, I feel like his work is amazing and does not show up anywhere near as, as frequently as it should. Bannister, Duncanson, these are, these are artists that came even before that, um, who... I feel should be more represented in these museums, um, should be more represented in what uh, a gallery is showing. And that's why I guess we're showing, but um, it, they just need more visibility. Right. Yeah. I, 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 so I, I really admire that. I, I think what you're saying is there's so much work that hasn't been given its due. It's, it's deep. It's, um, you know, it's important. And it needs to be uh, part of the canon that it wasn't part of. So it seems like to me, your work, the work that your father started is a work that you feel is important to expand upon and to, um, and to continue, which I think is admirable. It's really admirable. Um, You know, when I, when I think about galleries and again, I bring up this idea of the second generation uh, members. I think of uh, Pace Gallery, I think of Zwerner, and, um, you know, their, their, their sons and or daughters are involved, getting involved in the gallery. They are 
you know, either producing podcasts or they're doing um, uh, publishing of uh, books and catalogs. Um, do you see similarities in how uh, these galleries have evolved, similar to the way your you and your dad's gallery have involved? I mean, are they similar, or are there any distinct differences? Oh, I mean, there's similarities in the sense that the younger generation is always going to push for more, I guess, advanced technologies or newer technologies, right. whether it be how we use social media, which social medias we use, um, pushing more on Instagram versus using Facebook. Um, things like that are, I guess, generational and understanding what technologies the, are, are currently popular. Um, pushing away from, we might not have to send out as many postcards anymore, um, but we can send out emails regularly. Um, it's, it's an important part in learning the new technologies, learning how to use them best to your advantage and actually executing. Um, and I, in reality, I imagine it's the same for a lot of the younger generation at other galleries. That's, that's, that's our job. Our job is to make sure that um, all of the work that's been put into it actually has, actually adapts to move forward. Great. The, um, Exactly. This idea of technology. I remember, I, I knew of your dad and I knew of the gallery. And But it's, it's interesting that the first piece that I actually uh, acquired from your gallery was due to an email that you had put out for uh, Richard Hunt. And it was a, a print um, and it was an abstract. And then I didn't really associate hunt with uh, works on paper. Of course, he would have works on paper. And I knew I couldn't afford any of his sculptures, even his maquettes. But um, the fact that you sent out this email with a print that I could actually afford <laughs> was, um, and I think this, it, it was easily 10 years ago. And I was sort of, you know, knocked out. I remember coming to the gallery and picking it up because I didn't want it to go into the mail and, you know, meeting you, meeting, you know, saying hi to your dad again. And what was um, extraordinary was that uh, we, we had a, a place uh, not too long ago, my wife and I in Battery Park, and I had a lot of the current work of, you know, from my own and our own personal collection up. And I had a, um, another, in fact, one of your, your neighbors there uh, in Chelsea, Catherine uh, Markell, Mm -hmm. She and I serve on the board of um, a nonprofit in Newark called Glass Roots. Uh, she was by and she's looking at my work, you know, looking at our collection. And she said, oh, my God, you have a Richard Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Kathy, how did you you, you, you spotted that piece across the room? How would you know that was a Richard Hunt? She said, Roger, I was in Chicago for quite a few years. And I sold, you know, works on paper. So I was familiar with, you know, Richard, of course, and I was familiar with a lot of artists who had works on paper. So, um, you know, for me, that was, that was a great sort of, again, a connection within this community of art where the, you know, my generation was, you know, acknowledging something that your generation, something that you had sort of uh, put out there for us. 
uh, as you said, digitally via this, um, <laughs> via the internet. So, um, so I guess you're right. You, you, you basically described, and I've sort of confirmed uh, what the, the current generation is bringing to, to the galleries, to, to this idea of, um, you know, how art can get into collectors' hands. Right. And well, and that's the emails we send out are also just a very important part of like when I was saying having work in museums and getting people to see the work is very important. Sending out the emails, even the people who don't acquire it, having them regularly see works by African-American artists is important. Um, and actually on the topic of the Richard Hunt, um, even his two-dimensional work has that flow or the, that use of line, if you want to call a, uh, a the, the sculptures he creates, uh, created with lines, um, that's very similar to what you would expect from a work on paper by Richard Hunt. Um, but, and he's one of the most prolific artists or public sculpture, at least in the United States. Um, so a lot of times people have seen a Richard Hunt before. <laughs> Well, again, I want to thank you for making uh, reintroducing to him me to him uh, via that work. I, I then had the pleasure at the opening of the new uh, Whitney Museum uh, meeting him. I saw him; he was you know all dressed in black, black tie, black shirt. <laughs> and uh, my other connection with him was that I had seen uh, a photo of him with his hard hat, his helmet, his shoulder uh, <laughs> helmet horn rim glasses, a plaid shirt on, and he was in the pages of uh, Ebony Magazine, and they said, here's the artist, uh, Richard Hunt. And I said, he looks like a, a welder, you know? And then I, you know, I was, I was maybe 13 or 14 at the time. Uh, before <laughs> I entered um, an art high school. I, I realized that, again, that there were so many different types of ways of being an artist. And, you know, as you said, Richard Hunter is the most prolific um, sculptor, American sculptor, with public pieces and spaces around the country. Um, so for me, it was phenomenal to meet him, to share my story, and to share the Bill Hodges, uh, Novendran's Hodges story of my acquiring a piece of his work. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and, and, go ahead. Yeah. And, uh, and he absolutely... Uh, I, I met him a few years. I've met him a couple of times now, but he's he's incredibly nice. And he he's 85 years old now, still welding. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 amazing. So um I wanna I wanna um sort of wrap up our conversation. I've really enjoyed it and and thank you for um you know for being with us today. Um thank you. I wanted to ask you, are you an art collector? I am. Okay. Um, and what, who, or what do you collect? I, I guess even since I was a kid, I've always enjoyed being a collector. Mm -hmm. um, whether it was Marvel cards or various other card game things I played, like I, I had some Pokemon cards. I still have them. <laughs> um, Hold on to them. Oh, I, 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 I've heard, uh, the, um, but when it comes to art, I still, I think that everybody has to only collect art that they like. 
but also being in the business, I need to be ready. I need to be willing to part with things, at least for now. I mean, my father's at the point where he can hold on to things and not have to worry about reselling them to make a living um, because he has other things that he might that he can sell. Um, but for me, I I purchase what I like, um, and like I said, I like Norman Lewis, so I was was happy to to get some works on paper over the years, which I I've had to also sell a number of them over the years. Um, Prints are are convenient for me just because of the price point. So Jacob Lawrence, Romer Bearden, uh, Benny Andrews works. I've I've also taken a liking to. Um, and then I started looking at Japanese artists because I went to Jap. I went back to Japan a few times, um, and I started practicing or studying again. And so I took, I started looking into the the works there. Um, whether it's I guess the most popular is what Takashi Murakami. Um, but even smaller artists that were that stemmed from my uh, looking at the the Kai Kai Kiki gallery that he has, um, that uh, again usually looking at prints, um, acquiring a few drawings here and there. But on my well, also because I just moved, the only thing I currently have hanging is a work by Norman Lewis that my father gave me. I don't even know how old I was, but it, it was a while ago, and I've just I've just had it sitting around for forever. And so I, when I, when I, even when I moved into my last place, I, I put it up and as that's the only thing that I know I want to put on the wall, everything else I look at on a regular basis, but I know that I, I might have to sell it to, <laughs> to, to keep things going. Right. Um, but yeah, but that, but that's the idea. I mean, even if you're a collector who doesn't plan on selling it, you know, like, like the work that you acquire, um, and if you're a collector who plans on selling your work, like the work you acquire, because in reality, you're going to have to hold on to it. You're going to have to look at it and you might as well be happy with what you're holding on to. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my last question to you, to, yes. to that point, what artwork would you purchase if money were no object? If money were no object, oh, that's, that's difficult. Um, <laughs> I I grew up really liking Jean Miro, which is probably connecting connected to my really liking Norman Lewis's work because I see similarities in the way they use line to create figures. Um, uh, <laughs> that's there. There is a work that by Murakami that is at the uh, at MoMA. Which is, I think, right around when I decided I like his work. If there's a way to acquire that, that would be great. Can you describe uh, it? Can you describe this Murakami piece? Yes, uh, it's titled Seven Two Seven, and it's a work that centers around his character called Dob, which I guess is a I don't know what to call it other than a joke that he made about. Uh, what Mickey Mouse was. So it's his version of Mickey Mouse. He wanted to create a character that um, would be his character that would show up all the time and, and make and be a recognizable thing similar to what Mickey Mouse is for Disney. Um, and it, it, it's just a work uh, that I, I don't know how to explain 
how I felt when I saw it. But that's how that's what art is supposed to do. Um, I see Norman Lewis canvases and I, I get giddy um, every, almost every time I see one that I've never seen before, which I've seen a lot of them at this point. But the first time I saw this work, I, I decided I liked Takashi Murakami's work. And I, I, I would love to own a, a print of it even, but there, that opportunity hasn't come up for me. But, you know, I, uh, to own the original would be amazing. Right. Um, well, uh, here's to your uh, owning that original sometime <laughs> sooner than later. Maybe someday. And, and holding on to it. <laughs> yes, because if I, if I acquired it, I, I, I'd want to keep it. <laughs> Absolutely. Great, great. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for uh, this conversation. Thank you for sharing some, you know, again, this insight into, you know, second generation, um, the art business of, the, of a, a second generation and how that generation can propel and or um, look at the vision, the original vision, and somehow uh, expand and, and make that vision um, uh, become a reality in, in significant ways. And I think your emphasis on getting the, you know, the iconic um, artists of the 20th century at Clark and Norman Lewis and, and um, Bearden and the like into uh, the major institutions is a, uh, a great goal. And um, so I, I, I wish you continued success One, two, on that. Three, four. Thank you so much. And right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Be well and be safe. Tune in next time for another conversation with our guest. We'll share their Newark, New Jersey cultural journey. If you'd like to share your Newark, New Jersey story, go to our website and submit your unique journey on our contact page. I'm your host, Roger Tucker. I look forward to sharing these fascinating Newark, New Jersey conversations with you sometime soon. So long and be well. Safari Star.